Laura is back. No one appears to be having technical difficulties. It looks like we'll close out the month of February with the four of the regulars intact on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with welcome back Laura Johnston as well as Lisa Garvin and Layla Atassi. I'm sure you listened to every episode while you were skiing. <laughs> I didn't listen to Mondays because I figured I knew all the stories from that, but I did listen to the rest of them and I laughed out loud when Layla called me an air traffic controller because I was like, I am going to use that description when someone asks me what I do. I'm just going to be like, I'm an air traffic controller for a new Well, site. I got to tell you, Laura, it, it's, it's intentional that I do a crummy job handling your duties when you're away so that they'll all miss you more. It's not, it's not an accident. It's, it's, it's really what I'm trying to do. Yeah, there was way too much dealing with Quinn this past week. <laughs> oh, I see. I feel like there wasn't enough. Okay, let's get going. We talked about this on Friday, but reporter Andrew Tobias did some reporting on it. Was it a mistake for the Democrats on the Ohio Redistricting Commission to oppose the new legislative maps, meaning they will expire in four years instead of ten? Or was it a smart, principled strategy to make the new redistricting process legitimate? Lisa, what did Andrew find? I think he found that they're taking a reckless gamble with this, you know, latest issue. Uh, the maps that were approved last week uh, are not approved, but well, yes, approved. Um, 40, 54 to 46 proportionality was met with the third map that the DOP forwarded last week. Um, and that's actually a little bit better than the Democratic map, which had it 56 and a little worse than the Democratic map at 56 to 44. I'm sorry, too many numbers for a Monday morning. Um, but the Democrats are confident that uh, the uh, Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor will throw these latest maps out. Of course, if they don't, it will only be good in four years. Years, and then if we get a supermajority back in the legislature, depending on the midterm elections, then, you know, when the map process is over in four years, we could get a worse map than we have right now. So I don't know what they're thinking, but they, they really are, you know, resting their confidence on O'Connor to uh, reject these maps. It was interesting. They complained that... The, part, go ahead. part of the reaction that we got after our discussion last week, where we called them fools for not voting for these, you would have locked in fair maps for 10 years. It's really indefensible, I think. But part of the reaction we got was from people saying, see, this isn't just the Republicans that are being partisan. This is the Democrats. The Democrats were just going to reject it no matter what. They never had any intention of working together. And look, I get it that the Republicans kept the Democrats in the cold the whole time. They never worked with them despite Supreme Court orders. But ultimately, those are the fairest maps we've seen in Ohio in a long, long time. And it would have shown a sense of bipartisanship to support them instead of taking the knee-jerk reaction of picking up your toys and going home. Yeah, and I... I... I just don't really know what they're thinking. I, they're really hung up on the disparity issue, the disparity between the number of toss-up districts between the GOP and the Democrats. So um, in the opinion of the Ohio Supreme Court of February 7th, they did mention that disparity, and that was their reason for rejecting the second map. But, you know, the latest map has 26 Democratic-leaning toss-up districts. The old map before it had 20. So, I mean, there is improvement there. They're just arguing over the percentage. You know, they say it, you know, it should be uh, some of them are 1%, some of them are 3%. But honestly, I think they just need to let that go and just let this happen. This is 
I don't know. It just it boggles my mind actually that they would vote no. And Faber voted no, but he had his own state auditor Keith Faber that is voted no, but he had his own reasons for voting no. He said it was, you know, just like the Democratic maps. So I don't know. I, I just think the Democrats on the statewide level are the worst fumblers we've seen in forever. The Democratic Party is in a state of disarray, and it's this kind of decision making that really puts a focus on them. This was a bad move, poorly thought out, poorly conceived. And if there's any way they can reverse it, they should. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine is indefensible, and he suddenly has the enmity of most of the world. There were amazing demonstrations across the globe over the weekend in opposition to his invasion of Ukraine. And this includes Northeast Ohio. Reporter Bob Higgs wrote about how Northeast Ohio is coping with this invasion in a number of ways. Layla, what did he find? Yeah, so uh, as the situation in Ukraine is becoming more intense by the moment here in Northeast Ohio, people with with ties to Ukraine, especially those with loved ones who are still living there, are just overwhelmed with anxiety, as you can imagine. Bob Higgs spoke with a number of them for a story this past weekend. Among them was Peter Taluk, who worked for 20 years in Ukraine before returning to the United States last summer and moving to Stowe so his son could begin high school at Walsh Jesuit. His wife, Natalia, and daughter also came to the States, but recently Natalia returned to Kiev and her job as a corporate executive. This week, she awoke, this, or this past week, she awoke to the sounds of shelling and, and fled the city to, to a friend's house. Taluk has been in touch with his wife every day, but they decided she shouldn't try to leave the country immediately because thousands of people have flocked west toward Ukraine's border with Poland, plugging roads and train stations. And and meanwhile, Taluk is trying to track the whereabouts and safety of, of a couple dozen other friends and family members in Ukraine. So very stressful for people like him who are here in Northeast Ohio looking from a distance. In, in the greater Cleveland area in general, aid, humanitarian aid and, and other kinds of aid is likely to be coordinated through the Cleveland Maiden Association, Bob, Bob reported. That's a nonprofit that assists families that have been harmed during conflict in Ukraine. This is an organization that was formed in 2014. And since then, it's shipped 20 tons of medical supplies and equipment uh, valued at nearly $700,000 to Ukraine. And they've also bought and shipped ambulances and pickup trucks overseas. Uh, so, you know, there's that component. And then meanwhile, Joe Simperman, who runs Global Cleveland, told Bob that he has already begun fielding requests from Ukrainians interested in seeking refuge here in Northeast Ohio, given the large Ukrainian population we have, particularly in Parma and the support system that comes along with that. Simperman said he is expecting a deluge of immigration requests in the coming weeks and months as as this crisis continues to unfold. Well, all these people have embraced freedom, and what Vladimir Putin is trying to do is take it away. They are showing an incredible resilience in fighting back. And even if, if Putin is successful in conquering the country, good luck overseeing it, because you've got a whole bunch of people that now hate you and will fight you at every turn. Mike DeWine was in Parma over the weekend for a service. He's also trying to do his own part to hurt the economy of Russia. What did he announce late Friday? Yeah, on Saturday, DeWine called for, for, for the State Com- Commerce Department to stop the purchase and sale of all vodka made by Russian Standard, which is a Russian-owned company. 
And apparently Russian Standard is the only Russian-owned vodka sold in, in, in Ohio. It's sold under the names Greenmark Vodka and Russian Standard Vodka. Other brands of vodka sold in Ohio, including those with Russian names, are bought from non-Russian distilleries. So the Ohio Division of Liquor Control says that about 6,400 bottles of Russian Standard product sit on the shelves of the state's 487 liquor agencies. Other states are, are doing the same thing. They're, they're with this boycott. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. What do you think about that <laughs> as an effective tool? Well, of, uh, one of our colleagues is, wants our reporters to ask DeWine is if he's going to call on Intel to stop selling microchips to Russia, which I think is an mm. interesting question. Not mm-hmm. getting microchips would cripple a lot of the, the business Oh, that's such a better idea than yeah, vodka. Yeah, vodka. <laughs> Look, it's a, it, he's vodka doing his boycott. part. Everybody feels like they should do something about this. We have not seen this kind of thing in, in you know, 80 years, man. This is bad. A big bully country beaten up on its neighbor, and it's really been kind of lovely to see the fight back in the world coming to support Ukraine. We'll have to s- do you think, though, that the vodka boycott could end up backfiring and hurting sales of non-Russian-made vodka? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, particularly those with Russia in the name. I think a lot of people associate vodka with Russia. And, you know, I I was surprised to hear that only one brand is actually made in Russia. So, I mean, it, once you plant the seed that, you know, you should boycott Russian vodka, I think people might, I think I that would have happened naturally, <laughs> though, confused. whether he called for it or not. Right. We'll have to see if tequila sales go up. Okay, well, <laughs> you're listening to Today in Ohio. Reporter Steve Litt updated everyone Sunday with all sorts of efforts going on across the Northeast Ohio lakefront to open up access to our biggest natural resource. Laura, you weren't around when he was preparing the story, but I'm presuming you read it because you are our lake expert. Where do things stand? Yeah, I was so happy to read this story. So Steve detailed five big plans happening right now. Some of them are familiar. Some of them go way back to Jane Campbell's 2004 plan. But now they're going way faster than I would have anticipated after so many years of talk. And some are brand new that I just learned about in Steve's story, including in my own town. So um, we've talked about the imaginative idea for the new island near the shoreway by East 55th and East 72nd. That's one of the five plans to create a 76-acre East Side Park. That's well on its way. And the Metro Parks, which are spearheading that, actually have double the money for the study than they anticipated, about $4 million already. And then there are four other big deals that are all working together. And this is partly inspired by Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish's idea for a trail that spans the county's 30 miles of Lake Erie shoreline. That's not actually feasible, but planners want to expand the few miles of access we have, help link it all together so that people really can can enjoy this natural resource. Um, these four plans would add five mi- miles of trails, amenity, and access points at a cost of about 50 to $60 million. There are already a study for a lot of them, and the county's applied for more than $14 million in grants to pay for more detailed planning and engineering and a portion of construction. And then once they do that, then they hope to get more money from state and federal sources to finish that out. Yeah, it was great to see that there's progress being made. And on the island, to have the money actually starting to come in. It may not sound like a lot, as Steve said, Mm -hmm. but it is. Isn't it? Because for so long we've said, oh, let's do this. And and we've had very little come to fruition. And now all of a sudden, you know, with the infrastructure bill talk and and the money from the state or the, you know, 
money from ARPA. It's just like all coming together. And I didn't, one of the ones I think is really exciting is 1.2 miles of Clifton Boulevard and Lakewood and Lake Road and Rocky River. There's a really big bridge over the Rocky River there. And I've biked it before with my kids, but it's dangerous. You're on this tiny little sidewalk, cars are zooming by, you've got, um, you know, just chain link on one side. And now they want to create like a stopping point with benches and greenery so that you can stop and enjoy this magnificent view of the river and the cliffs and the Cleveland Yachting Club below. So that would be a nine to $10 million project. They've got construction scheduled for 2023 already. Um, more work in Lakewood to um, shore up the crumbling shale cliffs by the Gold Coast. And then there's a talk on about marginal road and downtown for 2.7 miles of trails along the north and south marginal roads between east 9th and east 55th and if you've run that before in the marathon or something it's a pretty desolate stretch so this would make it a lot more enjoyable to bike there i'll tell you what all this talk about trails makes me nervous about pedophiles (laughs) (laughs) i did listen to your conversation about that and i was like yes i would rather have a trail than an abandoned you know, uh, rail line in my backyard. Okay, check out Steve's story on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Reporter Jeremy Pelzer profiled the two Democrats seeking to be Ohio governor. Lisa, let's start with Nan Whaley. What are the highlights of what Jeremy wrote? Yeah, it was interesting to read these profiles of both of these candidates. I learned a lot about both of them. Nan Whaley um, actually was, she's 46 years old. She was born in Mooresville, Indiana, but she came to Ohio to attend the University of Dayton, where she got a bachelor's in chemistry, of all things. And then she got her master's of public administration at Wright State University. She was the youngest woman named to the Dayton City Commission in 2005 and then became Dayton's mayor in 2014. Now, she has had some time on the national stage, um, both for kind of tragic reasons. After the 2019 mass shooting at Ned Pepper's Bar in, in Dayton, where nine people were killed and 17 wounded. Um, She was on the national news and and talking a lot about gun control and and that kind of thing. Uh, She's also known for uh, establishing a mobile crisis response team and a needle exchange program to combat the opioid epidemic. And during her term as mayor, she also got free preschool for families with four-year-olds, and it was the first tax hike in Dayton in 32 years. Um, She's a lifelong Democrat. Her parents were Democrats and very politically involved. She uh, actually volunteered at the local Democratic headquarters while she was at the University of Dayton, and then rose to the executive director of the Montgomery County Democratic Party uh, during her time there in college. So yeah, she's really kind of had her foot in it for quite a long time, but wasn't an elected person until 2000. Um, A lot of people describe her as generous and caring, but tough. And she expects loyalty and hard work from the people that she works with. Okay, I'm I'm risking saying this on a show where I'm outnumbered three to one by women. But I actually thought the profile of John Cranley showed a lot more substance. So what are the highlights that Jeremy found for him? Yeah, no, yeah, I, I've, I've thought the same as well. Um, John Cranley uh, is an Ohio native. He was born in Green Township, and by the way, his birthday is today. He turns 48 today. He got a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy at John Carroll University and then got several degrees from Harvard, from the law school, the Divinity School, which surprised me. Um, he's been the uh, Cincinnati mayor since 2013. But back at the tender age of 26, back in 2000, he was tapped by the chemical 
Hamilton County Democratic Party to run for Congress against the incumbent Republican uh, Steve Chabot. Uh, He was the second youngest candidate in the U.S. at that time. He did lose to Chabot. Chabot got 53% of the vote. Um, Also, he was featured on MTV's True Life series that accompanied him on the campaign trail during this 2000 election. Um, But he did get appointed to an open seat on the Cincinnati Council one month after this election, after he lost this election. Some of his other highlights, he founded the Innocence Project with a a, a friend, Mark Godsey, in 2002. That helps to get wrongfully convicted people get released. And he also gets props for knowing issues in the black communities. He came to Cleveland to talk to black communities. And former uh, Cleveland City Councilman Jeff Johnson said, wow, he really had his finger on the pulse of what's going on in black communities. He is known for being kind of of abrasive and thin-skinned and a little bit prickly, and he actually admits to that. He says, "I know I'm that kind of guy, but I but I get things done." He's also evolved his views on abortion. He was, you know, uh, against it, and he says now that he's pro-choice. He still doesn't agree about abortion, but he is pro-choice. I don't know. Do we really need another prickly, thin-skinned politician in Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a tough choice for Democrats. I mean, they're they're very interesting people. And they, you know, I, what I like about Cranley is he, with the Innocence Project, he really did show a devotion to public service. The amount of good that the Innocence Project has done in Ohio is not measurable. Layla, or Layla and Laura, did you see anything in there that struck you? I, I think it's really interesting that they're friends and they've been friends and they're about the same age, really. So, and, and I haven't seen any mud throwing yet between the candidates. Mm-hmm. I hope we don't. I hope it's all about substance and what they hope to do. But I think Democrats have two really good choices here and they've shown a devotion to public service their entire adult lives. And they they both have things to show for it. It's not just mm-hmm. like, well, they ran and they won. I mean, what Nan Whaley's done in Dayton, she has a track record. And you're right, what John Cranley's done, it's it's impressive and inspiring did jeremy check to see if they have driver licenses (laughs) (laughs) i just had to throw that dig in there check out the profiles they're really deep and they uh, give you a good idea who they are especially since they're not from around here i don't think most in northeast ohio know them the profiles are on cleveland.com you're listening to today in ohio Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb has come out with his thoughts on helping revive the West Side Market. Layla, this story kind of got lost in the shuffle on Friday. What what does it say? Yeah, today Bibb plans on introducing to City Council legislation that would permit alcohol sales at the West Side Market, and it would also cap rent increases for vendors and allow for new types of vendor leases. Hopefully, all of this would help drive down the number of vacant stalls at the market. So this legislation would repeal an existing ordinance that prohibits alcohol sales at at market stalls. It would freeze this year's vendor rental rates, too, at 2020 rates. Without doing that, an existing ordinance would require the city to increase rates this year by 30 percent, which Bibb says is just totally unfair after what everyone's been through this these past couple of years. And it would also cap future years rent increases at 3 percent annually. It would also allow short-term leases to allow food trucks, seasonal vendors, and pop-up stands. The city allowed such leases under a pilot project last year, but they haven't really been allowed beyond that. 
Uh, we would also see longer-term leases with vendors, three years, with options to renew for another three. Right now, vendor leases are, are you know, limited to only one year. And that means that businesses that would like to get financing to invest in their space just can't do that. They're really limited. And also, we would see reduced rental rates for vendors that serve prepared foods. And that would mean that they were more on par with the traditional vendors. Currently, vendors of prepared foods pay a higher rate than those who sell meat and produce and things like that, which seems kind of silly. I, I don't mm-hmm. quite understand why that would be the case. And the plan would, would also renew an agreement with Ohio City, Inc. that would allow it to manage a fund to benefit the market. The nonprofit was, was allowed to do that 10 years ago in anticipation of the market's centennial, but then the agreement lapsed. So... You know, I think um, many, many of the suggestions that came out of a cons- the consultant's report last year that former Mayor Frank Jackson had commissioned are, are pulled into what Bibb is proposing here. You might remember, however, that Jackson ordered that consultant to not consider the possibility that a third party manager would run the market. I think Bibb hasn't quite taken that off the table. I think that idea still very much appeals to him um, because, you know, we've seen it work in other cities. But so far, he's just taking these first pretty big steps toward improving the market, I think, in ways that are are substantive and and will uh, please the market vendors. If I could jump in here just for a bit, I think these are all wonderful ideas with the alcohol and the pop-ups, but the problem remains at the West Side Market, there's nowhere to sit. So, I mean, you're going to bring all this attention here, but people, I mean, there's like a little alleyway where they put their trash. There's a couple of benches out there and a couple tables on the sidewalk. So, yeah, these are great, but they need to, you know, increase the seating capacity. And if they're selling alcohol, can they take the alcohol off the premises? I don't know. Good points. I don't know We'll have to see what the reaction is. Good stuff. More to come. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Hey, um, I was out last week, so maybe I missed this announcement, but are we publishing obituaries for rabbits (laughs) now? Ha, 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 ha. I set Laura up to ask that question because I've got to answer it. i got to set the stage. I'm I'm riding my bike Saturday morning with the full slate of stuff I wanted to do. I've been making a bunch of Windsor chairs, and my email lights up with stuff that reads like this because we ran an obituary of a rabbit in the newspaper. That was the most sacrilegious, despicable post allowed by your paper. You have violated those memories as if you had entered a cemetery defacing monuments within. Shame on whoever posted the animal within those sacred boundaries. Shame on those who permitted this blasphemy. This is the perfect example of how we crumble as a society. You have debased what should be (laughs) sacred thus lessening the bounds that hold us together. So I kind of realized I was going to have to respond to this in a hurry because there were people greatly offended by the fact that a rabbit got into the obituaries. It wasn't something we did deliberately. We have not decided to start running animal obituaries, although we might. Uh, and But it was causing outrage. And I shamelessly used the travails of my poor dog, Ella, who had half her jaw removed <laughs> three weeks ago, to get sympathy from people and mute their furor. And so I wrote a story about how this happened, apologized for it. It became the number one staff story on our site. It generated hundreds of Facebook comments. The good news was most people were not offended by this. Most people said when they saw it, they got a chuckle out of it. Some people wrote me really mean notes, you know, on both sides. Shame on you. Like this, the one from the prominent attorney I read. 
and some saying, how dare you apologize? The real far to the edges <laughs> you can't animal win. lovers were like, of course they should be there. But, but you know, what, I'm, what we have to do is respect that if you're putting pictures of your kids or your spouse or your parents who've died, you, you might not like seeing the fuzzy face of a rabbit sticking out from the comms. And in fact, I heard from somebody whose mother's death notice was juxtaposed, and he was greatly mm. offended. We're going to have to talk to him and figure out some way to compensate him. The woman who owned yeah. the rabbit went on to Facebook and said she didn't mean to offend anybody, and she was really surprised that no one from the plane dealer had reached out. She said, I did everything I could to make clear it was a rabbit. Um, so, so this was a big deal. I think we got, because I suggested we might do it, lots of people say you should have an animal section. You should have it separate, but, but you should allow people to mourn their animals. I got to tell you, I spent the whole weekend cracking up about this. I mean, my wife kept seeing me just break out laughing and say, what are you laughing about? And it was this image of this rabbit's face peering out from the pages of the death notices. So, so we, re- we ran a photo of the oh, rabbit? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that still and this is, didn't To be like, clear, this is in the death notices that people, you know, they go through funeral homes usually, but it's written by families, right, to be right. completely clear. So... But I, you know, obviously I wasn't here. I didn't get the paper, but I, I saw your, your email and your story and I was floored when I saw this. I mean, Pearl Grover, <laughs> that is like the perfect I mean, it does name sound, It sounds a like rabbit. a human, right? And, yeah. But it is, it is like this really nuanced issue. Like, you're right. It's funny, but there are a lot of, of things. I never thought about this before, but I do think we should have an animal section because people feel so deeply when their pets die. But I also understand people that, you know, they don't want that in the same section. You know, it's it's run alphabetically, right? So yes. you like have a person and then you have Grover, comma, Pearl. Yeah, um, it, and she... But- it was right in the middle of the page, too. I mean, it really leapt out at oh you when my. you opened the obits. It was right there. It hopped out at you? Oh, yeah. Pearl, I'm so I, sorry. I get it. it, it's, it, it I get it. it. For all the parts about being sacred, but it is, in the end, hilarious. I was talking to Brad Harmon, our president, uh, you know, saying, hey, look, I'm going to have to write something about this. We got to deal with it head on. You always have to deal with a crisis like this head on. And, but I said, you know, Brad, we're going to be laughing about this later because it's just so, so strange. I do appreciate the, the, the huge majority of people that wrote were, were decent and nice and friendly and, and said they either got a chuckle out of it or wondered what happened. A whole lot of people saw it and wondered about it. Uh, and I also thank everybody who cares so deeply about my dog, who get lots of nice notes about that. I thought it was a brilliant stroke <laughs> to go out, take her in the snow, get a picture of her. How can you yell at a guy who's taking care of that dog? Um, in the end, the, the, I got a note this morning that I thought kind of summed it up. It said, as with human passing, closure may be needed, and sometimes seeing it in print creates the reality of the death of an animal. It may seem funny or trite to some, but publication of an obituary is part of cremation or burial service offered by veterinarians in the PD. In a separate section, I predict it would generate a positive response. Would you read them? If we had death notices about animals, would you read them? Absolutely. I mean, if people care about their pets enough that they would write that, like, 
they mean a lot to them and they're probably going to be pretty special. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. I would read them. It was I a would. fascinating yeah. thing. When's the last time the editor had the number one story on the site, huh? That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, if you have rabbit obituary in your headline, that's like pure clickbait. It was pretty guaranteed. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohioans consider this state to be the birthplace of aviation because of the Wright brothers, so it seems appropriate to have an Ohioan as a candidate to run the Federal Aviation Administration. Who is it and why is he qualified, Laura? So you may remember the name John Boccieri. He was a congressman from Poland, Ohio, who served from 2009 to 2011 in uh, the U.S. Congress. So now he's under consideration to replace Steve Dixon as the Federal Aviation Administrator. Dixon's going to leave the post on March 31st. I don't know the whole story on him leaving in the middle of his five-year term, but it's a familiar refrain. He wants to spend more time with his family. So Baccieri is an Air Force Reserve Lieutenant Colonel. He works as a Cleveland-based pilot for United Airlines, and he has a lot of bona fides. He's a vice chairman of the House Transport... He was the vice chairman of the House Transportation Committee's Aviation Subcommittee, He played an active role in air safety legislation. Obviously, he's a pilot. He's been active in the International Airline Pilots Association Union and has served on port authority boards. He's the vice commander of the 911th Airlift Wing at Pittsburgh International Airport Air Reserve Station. So this is not a final. There's a bunch of other people that are being considered, but he said he was honored to be considered. Yeah, it was the name we had not heard in a long time. What's he been doing since he left office? I mean, he's a pilot. He's flying for United out of Cleveland, so that probably keeps him pretty busy. But um, Jared Brown is on board. He said the Federal Aviation Administration needs strong leaders like John who understand the dignity of work. Got to get that that phrase in there, right? Mm-hmm. And the many challenges facing the aviation sector. So that would be really cool to have a, an Ohioan on, in charge it, of that. It seems like it just should happen, right? Because we are, <laughs> North Carolina's claims aside, we are where it all began. Can I say, though, that he's facing some stiff competition against Sully Sullenberger, the U.S. Mm. Airways pilot who earned a claim in 2009 when he safely landed that plane in the Hudson River? And didn't Tom Hanks play him him in a movie? I mean, if Tom Hanks plays you in a movie, you might have enough. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for a Monday. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Tuesday.